to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Vicknell. Today's guest is Paul Simin, the 15th editor in the 150-year history of the Winnipeg Free Press. It's a little bit crazy to be a journalist right now, and Paul and his team are leading our province with the promise to deliver the information people need to make educated decisions, despite a growing distrust in media all around the world. A line our publisher Bob Cox uses is sort of a, a newspaper, a really good newspaper is a community in conversation with itself. Where are you getting information about things that are happening in your city, in your community, in your neighborhood? And if you're looking to Silicon Valley for that information, I don't think that's going to end well. I sat down with Paul Simon, editor of the Winnipeg Free Press, to talk about the current state of journalism in our society and the way the industry has evolved over the last 30 years as well as some potential solutions to bring back a little bit of sanity to the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and we have a very special guest on today's show. It's Paul Simen. He's the editor of the Winnipeg Free Press. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nolan. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Um, so this is go- 2022 is your 10th year as uh, editor of the Free. Is that accurate? First of all, I want yeah, to make sure. Okay. We, if we can get to the summer, that'll mark 10 years. So I want to talk about so much with you. Um, truth be told, I love talking about journalism. Um, okay. jo- Joanne Kelly was my journalism instructor at Red River College. Mm-hmm. And you came and spoke with us about 10 okay. years ago, about 10 Good. years ago ish, when I was in school about sort of just the business of journalism and everything that's going on with that. I want to kind of pick your brain about, about, about the current state of things, because I think we're in a very unique time when it comes to journalism and sort of everything that comes with that word. Um, But maybe just tell me, my first question is, how has journalism changed since 1988 when you first stepped foot in a newsroom? What's different since 88 to compared to 2022? Yeah, well, at one level, I don't think journalism has changed because the mission, the mission remains and and the free press is marking its 150th uh, anniversary uh, this year. Um, and I think ultimately what we are doing today is what we've always been trying to do and what we hope to do for another 150 years is, is ensure that Manitobans uh, have access to a trusted source of information about things that matter to them. Okay, so that's, that's the mission. But how we deliver that mission and, and the tools at our disposal has changed in ways that I couldn't ever have possibly imagined when I was a summer intern at the Winnipeg Free Press in uh, the summer of 88. And so there's been significant changes. Uh, We were uh, a print newspaper that came out in the afternoon. Um, I used to deliver it not that much uh, eight years earlier. I I was on the street delivering the Free Press on the day the Tribune folded. uh, And I still remember that day. I got into the business at a time when the free press uh, delivered a really good newspaper, but that's all we did. Um, There was no podcasts. Um, We wouldn't have known what a pod or a cast was. (laughs) Um, We did not, obviously the interweb hadn't even, you know, landed on Al Gore's radar screen. So there was nothing like that. There wasn't video. There wasn't, um, the ability to live update. There were interactive graphics. You couldn't, these things did not exist and you couldn't 
make things wider and swipe and all those kinds of things. So it's significantly changed. And I would argue for the better. Uh, we can do more for our readers now. We can keep them up to date. Uh, we can connect with them, whether they're in Winnipeg or whether they're afar, whether it's summer, uh, summer holidays at the cottage or winter getaways, assuming anyone's allowed to get away in the age of COVID. Uh, so if they're in Phoenix or Florida, we can do all sorts of things. Um, but the other challenge though, Nolan, is, is the ability for us to deliver our mission. Um, the business side of journalism has changed in ways, again, that we couldn't have imagined when I started. Uh, the free press made a lot of money for a long, long time. Um, and since, this is a really bad metric, but since I was hired an editor, um, our financial fortunes have dropped <laughs> considerably. Um, that's not necessarily a reflection on, on my leadership of our newsroom. It's just the reality of, of the news it's business. Every, it's every newsroom across yeah. the world, really. Yeah. That's right. And so you've got a ongoing erosion of advertising uh, revenue and, and to a degree, a migration of, of readers away from newspapers and that the next generation to follow longstanding readers isn't there. Uh, and they're spending a lot of time on other things. Um, uh, they're on their phones, but they're probably not reading news. Um, they're watching CAD videos or they're playing games. Um, and so the ability that we have to compete for people's attention and to make sure that people see the, the value of investing time and being informed is a challenge. And, and that, that's, those are the big changes. Yeah, that was that was a big. You came to speak with our journalism class, uh, Joanne Kelly's journalism class, yep. in, at Red River College about ten years ago when I was there, and you had a. It was a very candid conversation about the model, the business model of journalism. Yep. What you said in that answer was really interesting because it's like it's what people are currently caring about, right? And and you're trying to sort of fill that void. And I think the conversation, at least in the last two years, where I'm you know talking to people, has been the pandemic. Uh, I've loved a lot of your work and what you've been writing about the pandemic. But what are some of the challenges that you and your team are finding when there's just this like uh, constant changing of the rules of the goalposts of the mandates of the suggestions of the this and the that and you have to kind of be the be the middleman between the people making the rules and the people that are supposed to be following the rules and all of the different sort of difficulties that come with that because um it's a frustrating time for a lot of readers and, and a lot of pe just people in general and you are kind of the the brunt of being the ones to sort of almost like report the bad news that oh you got to stay inside again right so yeah. what is what has been the biggest challenge for for you and your team when it comes to reporting on the pandemic well it's our first pandemic so we're kind of you know um, like everyone else uh, making it up as we go um it's 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 a really interesting time and i, I i'm going to talk i'm going to try and break it down in three different ways on it's it's not surprising a pandemic is global in sphere. That means every one of us is affected. Um, and so we have had staff cover difficult stories in the past. Floods, um, you know, they're out on, on the dikes. They're not sleeping. They're, you know, mountaineering over mounds of, of, of dirt to try and stay ahead of the story and the rising water. You know, but they're not necessarily impacted in the sense that they're 
home, their livelihood mm. is is at risk. Um, we're we're really there's no running from the pandemic. So all my staff are having to to deal with everything that everyone else is too, right? So if schools are closed, that puts an impact on my staff too. So we write the story that says schools are closed, but now they're having to worry, what am I gonna do with my kids being home? Um, uh, when you can't get into nursing homes to visit your parents. So I had a situation where my um, mother and father were hospitalized at various points, even though they're fully vaccinated, we couldn't get in to visit them because uh, someone in their room was not vaccinated and there were certain uh, protocols in, in place. So we're all affected by it. Um, the other thing too is it's a story that's been never ending and really hasn't eased up. Mm. Um, we keep thinking that, you know, the second wave is going to be better than the first and the, the third is going to be better <laughs> than the second and that, you know, the vaccines are going to change things and they, they certainly have helped, but we haven't been able to escape from these ongoing impacts of, of COVID. And I, I want to make clear, I'm not trying to suggest that those challenges that we faced are anything on par with what nurses and doctors and healthcare aides and teachers, I have friends who are principals, and I mean, the job is, is never ending. Um, but the challenge, I think, a little bit for us is we have a job to do. Um, you know, under the Public Health Act, we're recognized as essential workers to a degree, and we have certain exemptions uh, because we have a role to play. It has become harder, I think, to do our job. And I, I don't want this to sound like I'm pulling out a violin, mm -hmm. but to access what actually is happening and, and simple things. Um, journalism wasn't meant to be done by way of Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, journalism certainly was not meant to be done by way of Zoom when politicians can basically avoid the kind of scrutiny that is needed. And when I say politicians, I'm not just talking about the premier here in, in Manitoba or the two premiers, the obviously Heather Stephenson, the current office holder and Brian Pallister before her, uh, who had the first uh, lion's share of the pandemic. I'm talking about premiers elsewhere and I'm talking about our prime minister. Um, we're not getting information that we need. We're not getting, we've asked, we have, I have readers calling in all the time saying, Paul, uh, we need to get answers to this, or could you ask this, or I've noticed this, How? What? what's happening here? And we ask and we can't get information. I think and sometimes, I think the system is overwhelmed. So there, there's a capacity issue. Mm -hmm. I think there are also some, some decisions made about the public, we're not gonna give them this information. I'm gonna use wastewater monitoring. Um, it's no secret that um, wastewater monitoring has allowed any number of jurisdictions to try and get a, heads up of what's coming by way of, of COVID. Uh, Manitoba has that data. Manitoba has not released that data. Other provinces have. Uh, in the US, you see that. And the question is, why not here? And we don't get really answers uh, other than we just know we're not getting it. Mm -hmm. and, and my line that I've used consistently is, in a public health crisis, uh, they are asking the public to do a lot, to sacrifice a lot, to give up things. And, and part of that, they better trust the public with the information because it's about all of us and we deserve to know, right? I don't deserve to know what's going on with your health necessarily, um, any more than you deserve to know about my health, but it's all our health. And so it has been very frustrating because 
if we're not doing, if we're not able to do the job that we know needs to be done, then the public isn't being informed to the extent that they need to. Yeah, it is a public safety issue. And I'm glad you brought up people sort of contacting you and asking, you got to ask this question, this and that, because I think there's a palpable frustration of the average person when we don't really know what to expect. We don't know what the next month is going to hold. We don't know how it's going to be different from the last month. Uh, so my next question is a two-parter. Uh, one, do you get hate mail? And two, how, how do you deal with all the hate mail that you get? Because I'm assuming it's uh, substantial. Um, yeah, I get, I don't get, I get more than presumably I'd, I'd like to get, and actually, just as we're talking here, I, I got an email from a staff member. Oh. Where, where, just hang on a second. Let me see if I can pull this up okay. in real time. Da, 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 da. I'm really sick of listening to this psycho leave voicemail threats every other week. He often calls several times per month, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Um, so anyways, this is, these are some of the calls that are coming in. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, we're getting a lot of that, a lot of, um, has it increased more because oh, of the yeah, pandemic? Yeah, I think it, 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 ha it has, um, I don't think people would disagree with what we've done, uh, in the past, but I don't think necessarily you would have seen threats. You wouldn't have got people right. saying, I hope Paul, that you get COVID, um, you know, and, and other threats that we've had to sort of monitor and, and try and do assessments as to how serious this is, as opposed to someone just making noise. Um, there's a lot of frustration out there. Um, there's a lot of division, uh, derision, and all sorts of other things that I am quite concerned about. And, and you know, we, we're not going to be deterred by that. Um, I had a call from a former MP uh, Friday afternoon that had noticed uh, passing the uh, trucker convoy outside the Manitoba legislature. I'll, I'll mention we're, we're, we're having this conversation on Monday, February 7th, and this was on Friday the 4th. So the first day of the trucker convoy in Winnipeg, the trucker convoys presumably had, had, had obviously had been going on a week earlier in, in Ottawa. And they were quite concerned because they said there was some people walking around with signs with my face on the back and on the front was uh, a sign that they kind of was a mock-up of our newspaper and it said, it was called the Winnipeg Fear Press. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not quite sure why my likeness is down at the protest. Uh, the good thing for me was it was really cold on Friday. So, you know, I was warm in my office and the likeness presumably feels no pain. But when, when, when did the anger and frustration about what's happening in the world writ large somehow become something that the free press and the editor is to uh, be blamed for? Uh, those aren't, uh, that's uh, a sort of um, a side effect of the pandemic that is, isn't really good. I don't mean to make light of the hate mail situation. I just knew that it was the case. And I know a lot of journal, I follow a lot of journalists on Twitter and I see the vitriol that gets spewed at them daily. So I don't want to make light of that situation, but I do want to sort of acknowledge it. And I think right now that there is a, there's a, there's a propaganda machine coming out of maybe the America, it, 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 all over the world of mistrust in the journalistic standard of the journalistic yeah. model of journalists in general. Um, how have you, how are you talking to your team and sort of bracing yourselves for this global mistrust of what you do with the hopes that they shake the 
you know, the foundations and, mm-hmm. and just to be able to get, grab more power if the, journal, if the trust in journalism gets um, eroded. How, how is your team preparing for that? Well, I think, I think at the end of the day, you just, you simply have to do your, keep doing your job. Mm. Um, and, and I, I would argue that sometimes these, these threats are evidence that, that we are at work mm. and performing our mission. Uh, leave that aside though, there, that, that's a, that's the broader, more philosophical question. There's, there's some tactical things that I think have to be part of the conversation. So we have had staff that have been threatened at rallies. Usually that's the anti-vax, anti-mandate uh, crowd. And this is earlier in the, in the experience. Um, we had one member who was spat upon and uh, had a bunch of uh, racial slurs uh, thrown his way. Um, so we've made some decisions that, you know, we don't have to be perhaps as close to protesters as we would have been in the past. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it's not worth it. If, you know, uh, we don't necessarily need to have that many or more images of angry uh, people without masks giving the public figure. Uh, the finger, I should say, and so you know we can we can do the journalism um, slightly different or a little more at a, at a distance in terms of of how we handle that. Um, but I, I don't think there, there's a there's a there's been a broader issue of of um, how the mainstream media has been has been characterized since Donald Trump came to office and even before then. Um, we know there is a lot of problem with uh, disinformation out there. That's part of this sort of epi- uh, pandemic uh, as well. Um, but I think the key thing for us is just to do our job and, and always be safe. So staff are frequently working in pairs. So there's uh, two sets of eyes watching what's going on and, and they've been told to, you know, uh, back up and keep their distance if, if that's the prudent thing to do. You don't go to journalism school thinking that you're going to be assaulted when you're going to talk to people, right? That's kind of, is that a new thing? Have you ever, have you ever experienced anything like this in your twenties? I don't, I'm not good at math, 30 years of doing the job. Well, it's over 30. Um, You, you do and you don't, I mean, look, I've been in war zones covering, um, I was in Kosovo or sort of the the Albanian um, Kosovo war uh, Mm -hmm. conflict. And then I was, I covered Canadian peacekeepers in the former Yugoslavia. In Croatia, so you know, there's always been journalists who have been um, attacked. Uh, you know, there's journalists every year that lose their lives, um, but those tend to be in, in sort of more in, in war conflicts or in cases where your beat is covering organized crime. As an example, I, I don't think anyone ever saw that that covering a rally at the Forks or an event, anything at the Forks, would be such that that you you would be spat upon or that you would need to be taking some steps. So that's just a development in recent times. It's it's troubling, but as we've seen, public health officials, Dr. Rusin and his colleagues across the country face similar things. Uh, nurses and doctors at emergency wards have been, um, you know, had difficulty either getting into their into their workplaces to do the healthcare, um, and have been yelled at by protesters. It's 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 not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, you seem like a fairly logical person. Um, My wife would disagree, but uh, yeah, thank you. at least within the context of journalism, but how do you, I, I've been asking this question to my friends and family and everyone, how do you, 
how do you reason someone out of a position that they didn't reason themselves into? If you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of protesters and a lot of, you know, like the freedom convoy thing that they're, 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 this isn't a logical thing. There's not a lot of logic behind why they're doing it. It's mostly emotion. I think it is fair to say. So how do we, how do we solve these gaps in belief in the systems and in the, in the, everything when it's not based in logic and you can't really argue your way out of it. Like we have to just tell a better story to the people who are currently telling themselves a story that has gotten them into this. Um, I, I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's definitely like, it's, it feels crazy to watch this all go down. And how do we, how do we connect with the people who seem to be pretty far um, gone and far lost and, and un, unwilling to even come to the table to have a discussion. Um, well, I think that's the, part, the problem. You can't really have a discussion with someone if they're not prepared to come to the table or if they're mm -hmm. not prepared to come out of their rabbit hole or, or if there is not a agreed upon set of facts, then I exactly. don't know where you go forward. And, and so that's the problem. I, I think, yep. you know, and I don't want to overstate the extent of the problem, but I think the vast majority of Manitobans understand what's going on. They don't like COVID. They may question some of the health orders, but I don't think they're denying that it's real mm -hmm. or there needs to be public health orders or the value of the vaccine and, and the boosters. So the problem we have though is, and I don't know what the percentage is, is it 10%? Is it 15%? Is it, is it higher in some localities and, and lower in, in others? Yes. But there are some people who are going to cling to their facts, mm -hmm. their truths, and don't want to have a discussion. They don't want to read what the Winnipeg Free Press says. In the US, they don't want to read what the New York Times says. And there are any number of influential people, um, Donald Trump and, and, and others, who have laid the groundwork with this by their dismissing of anything that isn't something that they've controlled as fake news. And you saw that at the, I watched a, some of the live streaming from one of the protesters on Friday outside the Manitoba legislature, and the, the line fake news came up and up over and over again. And so that is part of the narrative. And so to a degree, I think there are some people who are too far gone. Uh, when do they have an epiphany? Maybe. I'd like to think the epiphany doesn't come on their deathbed when the ventilator is, is being put in. But as we've seen, and we've, we've reported here and we've seen these stories elsewhere, like literally they are denying COVID right up to the point where their- Their lungs are filled with you know, that's fluid. Right, the fluid. And, and it's time for last rites or, or family being called in. And I don't know how you deal with that. And if the healthcare professionals, haven't figured out how to thread that needle, then uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not your, yeah, exactly. That's, I, I've got some friend, a buddy of mine who just graduated as a um, respiratory therapist or something like that right before the pandemic. And it's like, oh, you're gonna be, you know, working on, and he said the exact same thing. You're looking in someone's eyes as they're on their deathbed saying like, your lungs are currently filled with filled with fluid and you have COVID, they're like, it's not COVID, it's something else. And it, it's, it's, it's shocking to watch this happen so frequently of this denial of, of 
of reality. And, and I didn't think that was really that possible, but it, it's happening. And I, I really want to zoom in or like focus in on what you said. People aren't even agreeing on the definitions of words. Like mm-hmm. you hear oppression and segregation and all these things that it's like, that's not what those words mean. Like people think people think what we're living through is something that it's, it isn't. And I think it, it, it stems down to just a basic understanding of what freedom <laughs> actually means in Canada. And so how do you, how do we bridge that gap when someone, we're not even on, we're not even in the same book. We're not even having the same conversation. Like we're not even, the words don't even mean the same thing. When I say a word, it means something completely different to this person and to that person. So like, what, what do we do here? Like, is it an education issue? We need to make sure people just know what words mean, or is it a, what, what, what's the issue? I, it's, I think it's media literacy. And I think to a degree, mm. it's civics lessons. Mm. And I don't think probably we have spent enough time in our schools dealing with just how government works and what the constitution really is and that there's a difference between Canada and the United States. And so uh, ignorance, uh, a a pandemic thrives in ignorance. The virus likes all of this. Mm. Yeah, no kidding. Exactly. Let's maybe lighten it up. Let's talk about hockey. I saw in your Twitter yes. bio that you're a huge hockey fan. I got two questions. What's yes. your favorite memory in, 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 as a fan and a favorite memory as a player of our, of the great game? Oh God. You know what? Um, yeah. The, the hockey has been sort of the one outlet that I, uh, the one constant that I managed to maintain, even though our beer league was shut down, uh, twice me too uh, once, where, where are you playing out of if you don't uh, we play the charleswood men's hockey Association, okay so, nice. which we'll get to that a little bit is is a funder of uh grant with the uh the winnipeg foundation oh cool oh i think um, i've seen the picture i think i've seen that yeah 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 so anyway so we in in march of 20 our playoff run was cut short because of covid and then uh the restart of the season uh last fall uh, a year ago sort of the fall we got about I think, 10 games in and then the, the season was was uh um, I've been able to sort of skate outdoors a lot. Um, it's it's a safe activity, and when it's minus thirty, uh, funny there's not a lot of people on the ice with me. <laughs> so that's kind of a little bit of my outlet. I, I I'm trying to think. I, I don't think I've had a lot of success in hockey. So there's no Stanley Cups. There's no Memorial Cups. <laughs> I, 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 I stopped waiting by the phone in June for the draft when people would call. They never, they've never called. Even though, June of 2021, you mean? Like this well, yeah, started, well, in theory, my draft year would have been 1983. But mm. I figured, you know, if someone's a team's looking for help on the cap space, then drafting me would certainly help. You might have had a shot at the Olympics this year yeah. since they weren't well, taking, that. you know. So, but I would say, you know what? Uh, one of my favorite memories was coaching. Mm. and coaching my daughter's hockey team and we won the city championship uh it was the team was the peewee age team in overtime Mm. and so um i never won a city championship uh growing up and so that was pretty cool to be the head coach of that so that's that's a positive thing um obviously uh and something i'm pretty proud of and shout out to girls hockey and all that kind of stuff uh as a fan well, you know, you can talk about, you can, I still get goosebumps with Paul Henderson scoring in the 72 series. Um, but I've got this sort of ritual, I, like, cause you don't want you never want to anger the hockey gods. Mm-hmm. And at my age, I need all the help I can. 
I always try and make sure that I watch the last, I want to be there when the watching when the Stanley Cup on that is awarded. So I haven't, I haven't done it all the time. So, and, and look, when your team's not in it anymore and it's June and there's other things going on, but I, I'm, I'm pretty proud that I'm usually finding a way to watch that game when the Stanley Cup gets awarded. So, yeah, that's, that's the best for sure. Um, do you think journalism, let's, let's, now that we've brought some levity to the conversation, let's move back to the craziness. Um, do you think journalism can be almost like a community service in a way in, in that it can keep communities informed, engaged, connected um, with each other and with, and with, you know, the, the politicians in a way like how, how, I don't know how I'm even phrasing this question, but how can journalism be almost thought of how, how can we rebuild the belief in the structures of journalism that are starting to erode because of all the propaganda that's coming out of the states and, and across the world. I, I think you, you hit on something, Nolan, and a line our publisher Bob Cox uses is sort of a, a newspaper, a really good newspaper is a community in conversation with itself. Um, uh, I don't think, well, you could talk about office water coolers, but they don't, no one's really in the office mm -hmm. like they used to. So the, if a community is served by a place or by, by a, an institution, and I think the free press is the institution in the city and the province, it's a place that people can come together and have that conversation, but also be aware of what's happening. And, and it's not just, we're not just sort of pushing stuff out. We're also taking stuff in because people are calling us and there's a, a lot of information about what's happening, whether, it's it's you know what high school team did they who won the hockey game last night not just what the jets did but what say shaftesbury high school did um what's happening in the theaters or not happening in the theaters and there's a lot of things going on um and i think the key point is and we have lost this and uh, the interweb i think is 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 to blame where 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 are we where are you getting information about things that are happening in your city, in your community, in your neighborhood? Um, and if you're looking to Silicon Valley for that information, mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to end well. Mm -hmm. um, so I would argue that something happening here in the Red River Valley by people who live here, uh, who grew up here and are part of the community and writing about the community, is something that strengthens community. Um, there's a lot of data in the United States, more so than in Canada here, because there has been a hollowing out of, of newspapers in any number of states, uh, cities, cities that are larger than Winnipeg and really should have a, a newspaper. And what happens in those places that are not well served? Well, you find out that voter turnout isn't what it needs to be. Uh, you find out in many cases that there's problems in government because there's no one playing the watchdog role. And I don't want to make too fine a point. Um, in communities that are well served by a, a vibrant newspaper, their vaccination rate is higher. Um, and I think people can read into that what they will. Yeah, and especially nowadays, people are ex like journalists are expected to do more now than they ever have in, in the history of. Yep. the industry, right? Yep. Like where 
back in the day, you used to maybe have a newsroom of however many people. Now one person is doing the job of five. You're, you're shooting, you're editing, you're, you're interviewing, you're scheduling, you're doing kind of everything on your own now. So how has that changed the dynamic and understanding that now your team ha has higher expectations and they have to be more places than they used to be at once? Like how, how is, how have you sort of prepared new new journalists that are coming on and sort of starting their careers and being like, listen, I know we expect a lot of you, but here's like, how, how are you preparing people well, to, to they, for the they, job? They've, they've learned that they have to multitask and they have a broader skill set than when I graduated. Um, so our newsroom is about 65 full-time, full and part-time staff. Um, you know, when I started, it was over a hundred. Okay, so that's a fairly significant drop. So we're able... I think staff are, are, I'm going to say, are working harder than I did when I started. Uh, but the other thing, too, is they have mo more tools at their disposal that allow mm -hmm. them to work faster. Mm -hmm. um, we used to have a library in our building that was had filled with envelopes of clippings that were all categorized. So there would have been a clipping file for Heather Stephenson from January 2022 until February 2022. And then there's a new envelope. And so we would have every Heather Stephenson mention and you go back, there would be a Brian Pallister thing. So if you're trying to find out what Heather Stephenson said about the vaccine, you would have to root through this thing. Nothing was easy. Mm. We can, like everyone, can get answers pretty gosh darn quick. So staff are doing more, but there's tools at their disposal that allow them to do more. Right. How important are the fundamentals of, I know you can't meet someone in person and sit down with them and have a conversation to really suss out what's, what's going on and what's the core of the story here. But how, how much do you say, like, listen, get multiple, so like, how, how are you, how often do you focus on the, the fundamentals of good journalism and really sort of encouraging that? Well, I think the fundamentals of good journalism are even more important now because these are stories that are really about life and death. Uh, you know, w there's been big political discussions in this province in, in the past. Uh, I'll use the example of raising the PST, uh, something that ultimately brought down what was at the time a very popular government of, of Greg Selinger and his NDP administration. Um, if you think about it, it's a really interesting debate about whether Manitoba should raise the PST or not. Um, but really in the big picture compared to the issues we're dealing with now, not even close. Not, no, lives were not on the line. Um, so that was largely a political discussion and we covered that. And uh, I think some of our coverage and, and the dissent within Greg Selinger's cabinet that led to sort of a mutiny um, is all on the public record and to a degree uh, sped the way towards Brian Pallister and his conservatives uh, coming to power. Um, so, you know, we practice the fundamentals then. Um, those fundamentals are in place today and they better, we better be getting them right because this isn't about the PST. Uh, this is something much bigger um, and, and much more critical to everyone for generations to come. You're kind of in the context business. And I think right now, more than ever in human history, context is vital. 
And I think a lot of the conversations that are happening and a lot of the conclusions that people are coming to, it's because they don't have the full context of the situation. And a lot of people are making very strong assumptions and very strong decisions based on limited information. Um, so how do you deliver context and nuance in an era that that does not get the airtime? Context and nuance are not the things that are leading the news. It's not the thing that's at the top of your Facebook feed or your Twitter algorithm or whatever, but it's, it's vital for survival and for, to save lives. How, how are you, how do we get to the, to the, to the nuance and to the context when people don't seem to have much time for anything other than the headline? Well, the other thing is that I think there has been a, a, a tipping point in the pandemic where previously nuance and context I'd argue they have always mattered, but perhaps they didn't matter as much. And, and what has been really encouraging for me and for the Winnipeg Free Press is this greater appreciation or this realization, I use the word epiphany, that, hey, you know what? This, this thing that's produced here is really, really important and it's doing things that others can't or others won't. And my God, I'm really glad that the free press is, is, is on duty. And you know what? I'm going to send them. I hear they're in financial trouble because advertising dollars are drawing up and staff took a 20% pay cut. So I'm going to take my $200 check for buying Palser. I'm going to send it to Paul Cement. And they sent me the checks, okay? Um, and said, do with it what you will. Buy your staff. Give them a bonus. Buy more ink. Do whatever you want. Um, I want the record to show that all those checks were properly received, went to finance. Of course. Letters went out to these readers to thank them for their kindness. Um, I didn't use them to buy more expensive hockey sticks. That's the kind of thing that I don't think we would have imagined beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a thirst for context and, and nuance and for solid reporting. And something that takes you beyond just a soundbite or what may be flowing by your Facebook feed. And that's why our readership is up. Uh, that's why more people are spending more time with the free press. More people are saying this is something worthy of our of support. And therefore, I'm going to become a subscriber. I know what is fascinating. We have seen a, a jump in readers who have no connection to Winnipeg. Mm. I've got readers in New York, Hamilton, Vancouver Island, and Dubai who tell me, really like what you're doing the free press, Paul, so I came on board as a subscriber. Well, yeah, that's kind of the new way of, of this global journalism as opposed mm -hmm. to, to regional. Regional is obviously still important, and the local stuff is quite, quite important. But mm -hmm. the, there, there's this thirst for this sort of global narrative that people are, are focusing on, and I think that leads nicely into the conversation about climate reporting. Mm -hmm. um, we there's a there's going to be a partnership between the free press and the narwhal which is an incredible uh, organization and an incredible publication when it comes to reporting on the climate crisis but i just wonder your um your approach to that i mean we could talk about that for i'm sure hours and hours because it's such a gigantic and all-encompassing thing but for the last maybe even 10 years or so since you took the helm how has your approach to the climate crisis um what has what your approach been to the climate crisis and reporting well, on it? I, I think there was a recognition that we weren't doing enough. Um, and that recognition probably should have come earlier. And it's not that we weren't covering 
it. And when I say it, I'm talking about, gosh, I was writing about climate change in Ottawa when I was there for the free press in the late 90s, uh, early aughts uh, with the Kyoto Accord. So it, there's, we, we've given coverage. Uh, almost every election campaign has had some degree of environmental um, policy uh, as, as on, on offer. So it's not like we haven't covered it, but I don't think we covered it with the level of seriousness that it should have been. Mm. And so uh, about two years ago, um, a conversation again with our publisher, Bob Cox said, you know what, we need to get in on this. And so we did have a, um, we applied for a grant through the local journalism initiative, uh, which is a federally funded program that any number of newspapers uh, took advantage of. And so we did hire a dedicated uh, climate change reporter whose job was to write about it and write about it with authority and with context and nuance. And so Sarah Lariniak was the first reporter. Um, we had her on, on board for a little more than a year. Uh, we lost the funding, but we maintained our commitment to it. And then independent of that, subsequently, uh, Sarah left uh, to pursue another option. Um, we, so we hit pause on um, a climate change uh, reporter. Um, I said to our readers, we're gonna look for a way to try and make this work. As I mentioned earlier in, in this discussion, obviously it's not like we're flush with dollars um, to take on additional reporting responsibilities, but one, one was critical. And so this opportunity came way uh, to work with the Narwell and, and the Winnipeg Foundation. I'm delighted that um, that commitment we made to readers is, is going to um, start bearing fruit uh, probably uh, either later this month or early in March. And then it'll perhaps be strengthened, uh, well, it will be strengthened because uh, we'll be working in collaboration with the Narwhal. It seems like that's going to be this generation's everything to yeah. me. And, and it seems like that's the place that we need to focus. Um, just a quick question. Do you, do you have a hard deadline at one or anything or what's you? Yeah, I've got, I've got another call at one. Okay. All right. Well then we will go to the just because section. It's the same seven questions I ask all of my guests. We'll try to speed through them here. Cause we don't have much time. Question one. What is the very first cause Paulsman that you ever remember caring about? Uh, I think what my mom was a big um, involved with the Canadian Cancer Society on on canvassing and that kind of stuff. Mm. And so from an early age, I was either knocking on doors with my mother because she had to take her young kids with her when she was trying to get money from people for sport cancer. And then subsequently, I was I, I was a canvasser myself. So I think the first awareness that there's something good could be done to fight um cancer so that would be sort of the first philanthropic thing beautiful and just a quick aside you said your hockey team has has a philanthropic yes. endeavor uh, the, too the uh the charles women's hockey association in partnership with the winnipeg foundation part of our annual dues uh, go towards funding scholarships for hockey players at oak park and shaftesbury high school very cool i love so that. it's a beer league that drinks beer and does good at the same time I mean, drinking beer is doing good in my opinion, but it's also good to have a fun too, you know, great. Uh, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers. What's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? That could be any cause you choose, journalism, cancer care, I, anything. I would, I, I would 
I think journalism needs to be strengthened and, and doing so it, it would strengthen uh, the community and, mm -hmm. and the citizenry and civil society and all that kind of stuff. So at one point, if I won Lotto Max, I had a crazy idea that I had not discussed with my wife that I would do some sort of journalistic incubator thing that would hopefully be a pilot project to save the free world in journalism as we know. Gorgeous. But I've not, not discussed it with okay. my wife. I'll keep, keep that on the DL. Uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or biggest stigma about journalism right now? Uh, that, that, it's, that we can't be trusted and we're fake news and, and that's being spread faster than we can um, put facts on the table to show that's not the case. So, it, so is the play just, it's a long game and you just have to, you know, <laughs> I think it's, a, it's a long game. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that there's a tipping point where those who eventually come out of the rabbit hole realize something. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think the optimism stems with the fact that it is just a small minority of loud, you know, people with their heads in the sand, as opposed to the majority of people who are mostly reasonable and decent human beings. Uh, anyways, question four, what's a recent victory, either personally or professionally that, you're, uh, that you'd like to share with us? Personal victory. Um, you know, I should have a, I don't wanna, what would I say about that personal one? Um, or, well, prof or professional. Can we come back to that one? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Qu question five. What's the best piece of advice that you think you've ever been given? Uh, read books. Read. Read. Keep reading. And if you read enough, you'll get a little smarter and your writing, which is also important, will get better. I used to hang out at the St. James Public Library a lot. What's your favorite uh, type of book like? Um, I'm big into history. I, I'm a history major. I've probably read more books about World War II than, I'm not scared, it's healthy, but. Well, there's just so many stories when, yeah, when, yeah exactly. Very cool. Uh, question six, what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk to him right now? Um, the reading, the reading will, will, will bear fruit. <laughs> uh, and I'm serious. I think I, I don't think I'd be where I, I am today if it, if it wasn't for that. And I think the other thing too is just believe in yourself and anything is possible. I, I, I'm an optimistic person, I think. But when I look back and I think I only, when I'm looking back, I'm looking back as, as a father of three children. And I think that there were certain lessons that I've seen them benefit mm. from and i wish that i could have had those and i think a little bit is is sort of believing yourself that anything is is possible well that's just good i think that's just being a good parent is like learning lessons that you didn't have yourself and just trying to find a way to create scenarios where they learn those too yeah that's that's very cool uh there's only one more question so do you want to go back to the recent victory that you've the, had personally or professionally the recent victory or it doesn't even have to be that recent. Like any victory that you can think of that's like, okay, that okay. felt good you know to what? get a dub. I think that we've all faced a lot during the pandemic. Um, and I am, I'm proud of a, of a couple of things because it's not easy. I'm proud that I've been in the office every single day. Uh, I'm proud that I've managed to keep this, this nightly newsletter uh, mm. as part of our COVID briefing going. It's, it's got to be nearing 500 entries. Thank you for that, I by the way. I don't know where I'm getting them every single night. And, and for reasons known only 
I, I, it's almost, I'm not a marathoner. I do run, but I'm not a marathoner. And I, I, I think I want to keep this going for as long as possible to the point where I, I, I even write it when I'm on holidays. Um, so I think that's a point of pride. And then just making sure that I'm always getting out. I think it's very easy mm. in a pandemic to batten the hatches. Uh, and I have forced myself, and it's been a hard, cold winter. If I'm not running outdoors in the cold, then I am skating. And I, it, when you're outside on a fresh sheet of ice, there's a local community center that keeps its lights on all night, so I can be there at 10:30 mm. at night. And I, and I look at the ice. It's lovely. It's been lovely flooded, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No one has been on that ice but me. Uh, uh, a puck striking the post, hopefully bar down, sounds really good at 10:30 when it's minus 30. There's nothing more quintessentially Canadian. And that's the only thing like I, I was okay during the pandemic, but when I wasn't able to play hockey and go out for beers with the boys like that, I've said this on this podcast before. That's when I got depressed. That's when like, that's when the pandemic became difficult for me, but yeah, great answer. I love that. Um, so you've been in this sort of universe for thir- over 30 years. You do you give much thought about legacy or like what you're leaving behind? I think I think my legacy. I've, I've I've said when we talked about some of the seriousness facing our challenges. I I didn't want to be the free press's last editor. Yeah, it's my job to make sure that I can steer this ship uh, and and through in many cases difficult waters, pandemic storms, if you will, and and ensure that when I do hand off that the, the paper is stronger and the next person, whoever they may be, he or she will will be able to set sail and and you know um, we we're marking 150 years um, with the support of the community we can get 150 more beautiful paul simon editor of the winnipeg free press uh winnipegfreepress.com and like you like you were just talking about the nightly i i don't read it every night but i read it most nights and it's just nice to get a little bit of levity a little bit of context a little bit of nuance and just keeping people up to speed with what the hell is going on in this crazy crazy era of ours um Thank you for doing it. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for leading the steering the ship, as you said, and good luck in the future because it's it's not going to get easier. And uh, but it's great to have you at the helm. So thank you so much. Thank you. Noah. Take care. Thank you again to Paul Simin. Uh, I'm honored to have you on the show. Uh, I really feel like it's a privilege to get to speak to people like Paul and glean a little bit of wisdom because um, I think in our society we kind of take journalists and journalism a little bit for granted we don't really realize how important that job is and when that sort of trust and in the fundamentals of our society uh, is eroded I think corruption and evil can really sort of sneak in there if, if journalists as the watchdogs are defanged in a way so thank you, Paul, for the candid conversation. Uh, I hope you and your team stay safe while doing the great work that you're doing. All music on our show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music by searching Trenton Burton on Spotify. Because in Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by visiting wpgfdn.org or by searching for the Winnipeg Foundation on all social media platforms, including TikTok. We just recently launched our TikTok account. So search at WPGFDN on all social medias and uh, give us a follow. Thanks. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for Because and Effect. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week, same time, same place. And remember, journalism is merely history's first draft. 
Bye-bye.